so much for praying for me last week when I was in the hospital, although my devious plan to get out of preaching this sermon by going to the ER didn't work anyway, so, oh well. So, here I am, so let's go, just pray real quick. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for bringing us together. I pray that uh, through this study of Romans, that you would teach us a new way to live in peace with each other. In your name, amen. So we're in a series on Romans, and the week before last, TC took us through a closer look at chapter 9. He talked about how that chapter is not actually about individual salvation, but how we tend to take the hammer of individualism to it and try to make it all about us. Instead, he showed us that the chapter was really about how the Jews were hanging onto their privilege and how Paul was trying to show them that God did not choose Israel instead of the Gentiles, but for the sake of the Gentiles. So TC challenged us on how we hang on to our own privilege and how our hearts should be turned to where we fit into God's redemptive story, not our own perceived importance in it. So I'll be picking up from there. Um, at this point, I want to remind you of some historical context that will be helpful. So the earliest Christianity in Rome was predominantly Jewish. Started out in the synagogues, as did the whole church. But then under the Emperor Claudius, the Jews got kicked out of Rome. So they left. A couple years later, Claudius died and a new emperor came to the throne. So the Jews came back to the church. But when they got there, they found that the church had been Gentilified. <laughs> Gentiles are just anyone who isn't a Jew. So all of us, as far as I know, are Gentiles. So this new Christian culture in Rome that they returned to, being Gentile, they didn't keep the Jewish laws of the Torah. They didn't care about food rules. They didn't care about Sabbath. They didn't care about circumcision. And this really, really threw the returning Jews for a loop. So it put the church into two groups what Paul calls the weak group and the strong group. So if you're picturing a boxing match, in this corner, we have the weak. And uh, TC put this together uh, for a couple weeks ago. But So the weak are over here. And they're the ones who practice the Torah. They're the ones who follow the laws that God gave through Moses. They're the ones who have the traditions. They're the ones who follow the laws. They keep kosher. And they're proud of that. They're, we're Jewish. We have this heritage. God has chosen us. We're the elect. So that's the weak. And then over here, in this corner, it's the strong. And the strong are the ones who are who didn't come to faith through the Jewish tradition. And they have no idea what all these customs and traditions are, and like, who cares if you eat pig or not? And this is kind of confusing. So we're caught between the law people and the not law people. And the problem that Paul sees facing the church is not actually about should we practice the law or shouldn't we practice the law. The problem is the attitudes that these two groups have towards each other and how they are looking down their noses at each other. So the, the weak are judging the Gentiles because the Gentiles aren't in the stream of the history of Abraham. And they don't keep the law, so they're getting it all wrong. But the strong, or the Gentiles, are looking down on the weak, partially because the, the Gentiles in that church context were in a more privileged position in Roman society, so they're already kind of up on these pedestals. But also they believe that Jesus has moved on from the Jews and onto them. So kind of the idea is like, look guys, this is the way of the future. Get on board or get out. Get rid of those old-fashioned ideas. And so these two groups are sitting in the same church. They're sitting at the same table in the same room. 
and they're saying, you know what, this church isn't big enough for all of us. Some people have got to go. So I, I have some volunteers I'd like to bring up to help me with this. Can I get the Malone kids, please? <laughs> Can I get Ian and Liam and Ellie? Okay, I, I'd like your help. So, um, Ellie, can you get inside this, this hula hoop? And uh, Ian, can you get in here, please? And uh, Liam, could you, could you get in here? Okay, TC, could you come here, please? Okay, could you guys move over a little bit? Because TC's going to get in here. <laughs> okay, sweet. Now, I'd really like to get in here, too. So, um, okay. Okay, this is good, this is good. Um, Juice, do you want to come up here? <laughs> okay, let's see. Can we make room for Juice? No, I don't think there's room. Okay, Juice, you got to help us decide which one of us should go so you can come in here. Um, I'm probably Ellie. Okay. That's probably the okay. best. Okay, why, why Ellie? Let's no, make a good I, I feel her. like it'd be a good Oh, okay, okay, I think you can go. Okay, awesome, awesome. Oh, okay, welcome. Still a little tight. Can we get, can we get rid of one more person, please? Who should we get rid of? Ian. Ian? Okay, Ian, you're out. You're out. You're out. You're off the island. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You guys can go sit down again as soon as we get out. <laughs> so the two groups in the church are seeing the church as a hula hoop. If we're all going to fit in here, we're going to have to kick some people out. We can't all fit in here together. There's only so much room. And God's saying, no, this is not a hula hoop, people. This is a soccer stadium. This place is huge. There's plenty of room for all of you. Your picture is too small. It's not a hula hoop that God is calling this group to. So Paul needs to convince them of this. He needs to convince them that there is room in the church for both groups. And that that was God's plan all along, to take two groups and make one family out of them, to make them sisters and brothers. So how is he going to convince them of that? He's going to tell them a new story. This new story is that God's commitment and love for Israel has not changed, but has expanded to include the Gentiles. And not only this, but that wasn't a last-minute decision on God's part. God wasn't like, oh, I have an idea. It was part of the story all along. But it doesn't seem that way to the Jews. For the Jews, this feels like a major plot twist. A good plot twist is a jaw-dropper that makes us rethink everything we thought about, we knew about a story. So Darth Vader. No, I am your father. And we all just gasp. We, we can't believe it. It totally reframes the whole way that we saw the story. It surprises us. We see plot twists. The narrator is dead. It's all a dream. The bad guy's the good guy. The good guy's the bad guy. They're twins. They're clones. It's all a trick. And then at the great reveal, our minds just start spinning, and we go back to the beginning of the movie in light of the new information we have. We have to rethink everything. And when we rethink it, we think, oh, there's actually all these little clues that were sprinkled along the way, little breadcrumbs, that now I can actually see this didn't come out of nowhere. And we have this new story that we can't unsee. So Paul is offering this plot twist, which is a fresh take on the story of Israel. And it's surprising at first, but then we see there are hints and clues all the way along that showed that this was God's plan from the beginning. So there's two points that Paul makes in this new story that the Gentiles and Jews belong together. Number one is that God has always made surprising choices. His choices have always been unexpected. And that's God's prerogative. God's surprising choice to include Gentiles is just in keeping with what he's always done. 
So what's the evidence for that? Paul picks one story to describe. He talks about Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins. And although Esau was the oldest, and thus normally would be the important one, the chosen one, the heir, the one with the blessing, God switches things around and chooses Jacob to carry on the thread of his story, which was way out of line with cultural expectations, completely unexpected, and also Jacob was kind of a jerk. That's right. But what do we know about God? God makes unexpected choices. And what is happening now with the Jews and the Gentiles is that this seemingly surprising choice to include the Gentiles is just part of what we know to be true about God. The groundwork for this plot twist has been there all along. Point number two of this story, this new story that Paul is telling, God's inclusion is always out of grace and mercy and has nothing to do with the law. God doesn't pick and choose based on the good things people have done. God's extension of grace to the Gentiles completely apart from the law is actually what he always has done. So Paul pulls this out of the story of Jacob and Esau too. In chapter 9 verse 11 he says, Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls. God picked them. So Jacob wasn't Jacob didn't even exist when God chose him. So obviously God's choice has nothing to do with doing. God's choice has nothing to do with doing. See, God has a, a story and he calls who he will to keep it going. It's not the people who deserve it. It's not the people who make the everything click along good. It's not the people who have good works or bad works. It's not whether they keep Sabbath or are circumcised or eat kosher. So again, what seems like a plot twist is in keeping with what God's character has always been. This is also explained in Deuteronomy 7, uh, way back in the beginning, when God is telling Israel how he chose them. I, I love this verse. Um, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you, talking to the nation of Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Israel was chosen by God's grace way before the law existed. In the same way, God is adding the Gentiles as a measure of his grace. By grace, Israel is chosen. By grace, the Gentiles were added in. Paul says, it's God who decides to choose mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. So this is the new story that Paul's telling. But now that he's told it, his listeners have questions. Because after you learn a movie's pot test, you have a lot of questions, right? So for the Jews, the question is, wait, 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 wait. Weren't we here first? Aren't we the chosen ones? So does this mean that like God is done with us? Is he abandoning us? Is it all over? And is that even fair? And for the Gentiles or the strong, the question is, wait, wait, wait. What about us? Hasn't God moved on from the Jews? Isn't that whole Israel thing over? Why do we have to do their thing? So let's look at how Paul answers the week first. Paul knows the story of Israel is unique. He knows God gave them the covenant and the law, the temple, the promises, the patriarchs, the Messiah. So if God is moving all these things around to include the, the Jews or the Gentiles, it makes sense that the Jews would be asking, like, okay, is he through with us? 
And Paul's answer is a very strong no. He takes them to another story in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah. During the time of the kings, when Elijah was being hunted down and hounded, and he got to a point where his life was under threat, and he thought, I'm going to die, and I'm the only one left. And so that means the covenant and the promise dies with me. And he brings this complaint to God, and he tells God, they've, they've killed us off, I'm the only one left, it's over for Israel. And God says, that's what you think, but actually I have 7,000 people who have not bowed down to any idols. I have a remnant. Never, never, never in the history of God's relationship with Israel has there been a rejection or abandonment of them. Their history is tumultuous with God. Sometimes the majority of them wanders away, but always there has been a remnant of the faithful. And so even when there's just a remnant, the thread of Israel's connection with God has never been snapped. The covenant and the plan has been continuous without break from beginning until today. And that's not going to change. Paul is reassuring them. What has changed is that God has moved into a new phase of his continued faithfulness to Israel. But even so, even if God hasn't rejected them, it just doesn't feel fair because they've kept the faith. And now any old person who can come along with complete disregard for the law is in. It's not fair. I had to eat livered onions, and I had to sleep on the floor of the bus, and my sibling got the same curfew as I did. Um, It it just isn't fair. So their secondary question is, how, how can this be fair when we've been following you for so long? So when I was in high school, I did theater, and one of the plays that I was in, uh, the student who was playing the main character had to leave for several weeks, and we weren't sure if she was going to come back to campus or not. And so the director took me on as the understudy for the role. And this was all in the rehearsal stages, and we were working on blocking. So blocking in theater is basically where you move when. So it's like, okay, at this point, this character walks over here, and they pick up this book, and then they come over here, and they stand here, and they turn. And what we were blocking, the main big thing that had to get blocked was a fight scene. And it was very, very technically complex, because you have to make sure you don't actually hurt anybody, but it has to look like you're hurting them. So there was hair pulling, and biting, and punching, and kicking, and wrestling, and it was, we spent hours and hours and hours and hours just nailing down the details and getting the blocking just right. And after all that work, uh, this other student returned, and she took my notes from the blocking, and she learned it, and she went on, and I was put in a uh, minor role as the comic relief, because on occasion I have been known to be funny, so they <laughs> thought I could handle that. Um, but it was a real blow, because I would stand off in the side, and I would look on the stage as she was my friend, but as my friend is doing the part that I worked so hard for. I put all that effort, and I'm just like watching from the curtains. And that was so hard. And I think the Jews were in a similar position. They were on center stage. The spotlight was on them. They were doing all the work. And now it feels like they've been sidelined and emoted, and someone else has moved into the spotlight. Or, and, and they're like, what's left for them now? So they're saying, wait, we were here first. And not only that, but we have been good and well-behaved. And God says, yep, but I choose who I will choose, and it's not determined by how well-behaved you are. 
And Paul spends a lot of time in chapters 9 through 11 explaining this. And I think he does this because it goes against every sense of fairness and justice that we have. And it's easy for us to sit here and talk about things that have been unfair. We have a very acute sense of, of what is right and what's not right. And this makes me think a lot about the parable of the workers in, in the vineyard. So Matthew 20, the landowner wants some guys to work in his field. So he goes out early in the morning, says to these guys, okay, you come, you come work in my field, I'll give you a full day's wages. Oh, that's, that's good. We need, we need some jobs. They go, he's like, oh, I still need some workers. So he goes out at nine and he gets more workers, says, you know, I'll, I'll pay you what's fair at the end of the day. They come, they work for him, he goes at noon, I'll pay you what's fair at the end of the day. He goes at three, I'll pay you what's fair at the end of the day. And then at five, he goes out and he gets one more round of, of workers. So they all work, the work day's done, he lines them up, and those five o'clock bums, he, he pays them first, and he pays them a full day's wages. And I just imagine, like, standing at the back of the line, because I would be one of the people who worked at 6 a.m., you know, I'd be one of them. Like, ah, oh, this is gonna be sweet. I'm gonna be, like, raking in the cash. Like, oh, man, this is good, this is good. And he gets to me, and he gives me a full day's wages. Not a penny more than those guys who rolled in in the last hour. And the response in the parable is exactly what it would have been for me. There's steam coming out of their ears. Like, excuse me, this is not fair. How do these bums get the exact same thing that I did with all that work that I put in? And the landowner says, look, I kept my word to you, right? Like, when you came, I promised you this amount. Did I give you less than that amount? Have I broken my word to you? And, and, and they're like, no, no, you, you didn't. Okay, so if I want to pay these other guys that same amount, it's my vineyard, right? Matthew 20, 15 says, should you be jealous because I am kind to others? In the same way God is saying to Israel, I kept my promise to you. There's not an iota less received of what I promised to give you. But I can choose who I want to be kind to. Look at your history. Have I ever chosen a pattern that fits into a certain mold? I choose foreigners. I choose the youngest over the oldest. Now I'm choosing to include the Gentiles too. Why would you be jealous because I am kind? Ufta. So then the strong have their own question. So hasn't God like moved on from this whole Jew thing? Like why, why are we stuck here? And so to answer that question, Paul gives them a word picture of a tree. He talks about grafting. He says, imagine this tree and it represents the people of Israel and it's beautiful. These people have been elected by God's grace to bless the world. And then over here are some wild olive shoots, and these are the Gentiles. And what God has done is he's cut out parts of the branches of the tree and grafted these shoots in. Uh, 11.17 says, you have been granted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. So the way grafting works, you, you actually have to cut off a part from the original tree, and then you take a branch from a different tree and you slide it into that spot and then you bind them together. And then the, as the tissues grow together, as it becomes whole, the new and the old become one tree. And it's interesting because there's, there's a wounding that takes place, and it's only in the healing that those trees grow together. Um, which stood out to me because I think we know that the work of unity is hard, and there's healing and pain that has to take place. Right. 
So joining together is this work and this effort, but when it's finished, this is something I learned when I was studying for this, the amazing thing about a grafted plant is that it has more advantages over one plant alone. Because grafted plants can increase the fruitfulness of the plant, it can also make them more hardy and sturdy and better off. So it's, it's actually better to bring these two plants together for the sake of, of the tree. So recently I went to a friend's, uh, she was becoming a US citizen, and got to go to her ceremony with my, that's my nephew and my niece. And uh, it was super fun. Um, so we, got, we were sitting there and the judge got up and had them do the oath. And part of it goes like this. Uh, I have to read this because it's like so many big words. I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. But after the swearing in, the judge was giving these closing remarks and he pointed to that sentence and he said something along the lines, okay, your allegiance is now to this country, but I don't want you to lose the love or loyalty you have to the country you came from. And he told all of the new citizens, this country that is now our country, now that you're US citizens, is made richer by the food and the songs and the language and the ideas and the culture of your first home. So don't lose that, bring that with you. And I was sitting there like, oh, so beautiful. We are stronger and we are more fruitful in our diversity, amen? In the same way, the church is more strong and more fruitful and richer when we are together in the diversity of who God has made us to be. We all swear allegiance to King Jesus, but that does not turn us into clones. We bring who we are with us into this family. So in these chapters, Paul has a challenge for both groups. To the weak... You have not earned your spot by keeping the law or by being Israelites. It was given you. It's time to welcome your sisters and brothers with or without observance of your traditions. To the strong, you haven't earned this either. You are not somehow a new and improved version for having been grafted in. It was given as a gift to both of you. Paul says to them, don't consider yourself to be superior, do not be arrogant. Yes, salvation has been extended to the Gentiles, but not at the expense of the Jews. They are sharing into the root, and Jesus Messiah is what holds them all together. So for now, both groups, the final question and final challenge is no longer, what do we do with the law? Because as chapter 10 verse 4 says, Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. Christ took care of the law. So that's not a question anymore. The question is to decide what to do with Christ himself. Peace will not come through agreeing on Torah observance, but rather on a shared familyhood as sisters and brothers. We're not in a hula hoop. The weak don't need to shove the strong out. The strong don't need to shove the weak out. There's stadium for everyone. Two seemingly incompatible groups who by the grace of God have been made into one family. And it all boils down to this summary in chapter 10, 11 to 13. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone 
Jew and Gentile, weak and strong, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what about us here at Roots? Um, Here's a couple thoughts I'd like you to take away. One thing is we as the church, our church specifically, churches in general, we have our own sibling rivalries to work out. We're not working with Jews and Gentiles, but we have our own divisions and our own splits. We have our own categories of us and them. Uh, Christina Cleveland, in her book, Disunity in Christ, talks about right Christian and wrong Christian. And we all know in our minds who the right Christian and the wrong Christian is. And if you're not sure, just think about the people you agree with, and those are the people you think are the right Christians. (laughs) Christina says, uh, Dr. Cleveland says, Right Christian and wrong Christian is all about naming our biases and recognizing that many of us have so succumbed to the tribalism in the church that we've started labeling people who are like us as right and people who are different than us as wrong. This shows up all over the place, and we need to be aware of that. And I think nothing is more divisive in our church today than race. And I think that, I wonder... I don't know, but I wonder if Paul was writing Romans today, if he would be writing about racial reconciliation. I wonder that. Another thing that we can take away from this is there's no room for high horses. We, we don't need to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, God is so lucky to have me. It's pretty, pretty great that I'm here, you know? None of us have worked our way into God's family. And on the flip side, there's no judgment of others who are also in the family with us. God has mercy on all of us, so we don't decide who's in or who's out. There's, there's room in the hula hoop. And while it's important to remember that this chapter, these three chapters are not about us as individuals. TC talked about that mistake. I think that we can take away truths about God that apply to us as individuals. And, and one of them I would encourage you to take home has to do with how we assess ourselves. And you know when we're little, you, you assess yourself by the standards of the kickball field. So you know, who gets picked first? And, and then we grow into adulthood and we just still think those things. So here's something that's true about God. God does not bring us into his family because we're the smartest or the strongest or the fastest. He doesn't care if we can jump the highest or spit the furthest or flip the most on the monkey bars or any of the adult equivalent of those things. Like he said to Israel, I chose you because I loved you. So this week, I just think about this. Like imagine God taking your face or your shoulders, whichever one's more comfortable, and looking into your eyes and saying, I chose you because I love you. And that's true of the person sitting next to you and the person across the room. It's true for every individual. Carry that in your heart. I chose you because I love you. And that truth of God's love including us leads us to where Paul ends these chapters, which is gratitude. All of us here, Gentiles, have been grafted in. And the thought of how kind and generous and surprising this is moves Paul to sing out in a doxology of praise at the end of chapter 11. And so in closing, I would like to ask you, in celebration of this beautiful thing that is the church that God has created, in reading the doxology that Paul has in here. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. 